Last week, you may remember, it was Palm Sunday, the day in which we celebrate what we call Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. But we saw in the message that it was really a humble entry compared with what was going on in heaven before Jesus came and compared to his second coming. His entry, the, the entire ministry and his entry into Jerusalem is very humble by comparison. And then what followed that humble entry is a whirlwind week of ministry and activity of God among us, leading up to what I believe will be remembered for all eternity as the most joyous day in the history of humanity, Resurrection Sunday. And so this morning, I'm going to take you on a whirlwind tour of what happened that week leading all the way up to that Sunday morning. Would you just bow in prayer with me over this message? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, we're going to begin here in Matthew chapter 21, but we'll draw from all of the Gospels as we look at this week. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was on a Sunday, and Mark tells us that he went to the temple that night and looked around, but because it was so late, he went back out to the Mount of Olives for the night. But on Monday morning, he came back. Beginning in Matthew 21, verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. All right, now, what is going on here? I mean, why is Jesus making all this ruckus? Why is Jesus so upset? And, and what's he trying to accomplish with all of this disruption? Well, some have pointed out that Jesus was upset that people had set up shop there and they were uh, taking advantage of the people and they were making a killing in his temple. Well, all of that's true and, and that's part of it. But there's also more happening here than that. And you can see it in the next verse. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus is quoting a passage from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56, where God said that foreigners who love the name of the Lord, he said, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But in this temple, in Jesus' day, in the very nature of the architecture, they had disenfranchised all the Jewish women by creating a court for the women so that they were not able to get as close to God as the men were. And, and this isn't something that the tabernacle of Moses had in it. And, and then they disenfranchised uh, all the God-fearing Gentiles by creating a court for the Gentiles, which was even further removed from the presence of God. And it was another feature that wasn't in the tabernacle of Moses. So this wasn't really God's idea. And, and to make matters worse, they had allowed this court for the Gentiles where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship God and pray and hear the word of God. Uh, they had turned it into a marketplace and a, and a thoroughfare where people would just kind of walk to and from, from one part of the city to another. And so on any normal day, it was little more than a marketplace. But now, as we saw last week, there were more than 2 million Jewish people in the city from all over the Roman Empire for Passover all trying to get to the temple for their religious observances. So praying here, worshiping here, honoring God, hearing from God here was entirely impossible. And so Jesus rectifies the situation. 
He turned over all the tables of those selling things. Luke adds that he drove them out of the temple. Mark adds that he would not allow anyone to carry any merchandise through the courts. Now, I want you to understand what a huge undertaking this was and what a disruption this was. This court was immense. It wrapped around three sides of the temple. And so the effort required to stop all merchandising activity and change everyone's mindset and turn this court into a house of prayer would have been massive. He had to go from one end all the way to the other. This was a huge effort and a huge disruption of what they considered to be their normal lives. But that's what Jesus did. He restored things to how they should be. And so Jesus here is not merely cleansing the temple just for the temple's sake. He is setting things up for this entire week of ministry leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Because look what happens after this cleansing. Verse 14. It says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them there. So people are being healed. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. In verse 15, he adds that children were shouting praises. They were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Luke adds that every day he was teaching at the temple. And so look how things have changed. Instead of merchandising and angry, impatient crowds, there's worship, there's prayer, people are being healed, people are hearing the word of God and meeting the Messiah, coming to faith in the Messiah. Everything that God envisioned should be happening in his house is now happening. And so Jesus cleanses the temple for this week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. The Messiah, the Son of God, the one for whom this temple was set up has now come to the temple. And he doesn't want to spend his most important week in some obscure corner of the temple competing with everyday business of markets and life. He wants their attention. You know, sometimes when Jesus shows up, he disrupts things to get our attention. I mean, when we can't hear him, when we aren't really paying attention to him, or when we're, we're missing something that he wants us to see, he may allow disruption to come into our lives to get our attention, to refocus our hearts and minds on him and get us to a place where we're listening better. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that God is causing the corona pandemic, nor do I believe that God makes anyone sick. God is a healer, and, and, and no sickness ever came from Jesus. Only healing came from him. But in the midst of disruption, God often wants to get our attention so we can be in a position to see and receive the good things that he has in store for us. And so Jesus is getting things ready for his messianic ministry in the most important week of his earthly life. But there is even more than that. In this cleansing of the temple, Jesus is getting ready for everything that would take place in the book of Acts. I mean, think about it. Two million people are there from all over the Roman Empire, from Italy and Greece and Egypt and Macedonia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossa and Asia Minor. And John says that, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. And many of these people who saw and believed in Jesus then went back to Rome and Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus and the rest of the empire to all the places that Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy were going to be going in just a little while. 
Now, why do you think that so many people were ready to believe them when they came to their cities and proclaimed that a guy that they had never heard of before had risen from the dead? Well, certainly, probably the miracles that the apostles were performing was part of it. But think for a minute. Think of the impact if you were a skeptic. But there's this guy that you know and trust who says, no, no, wait a minute, no, when I was in Jerusalem at Passover, I, I met this guy, Jesus. And uh, they brought a lame man to the temple and he healed him. And they brought a guy who was blind and he gave him his sight. And, and you should have heard the things he was teaching. I've never heard such teaching. And, and you know what? He even said that he was going to rise from the dead. You know what? I didn't know what that meant at the time. But you know, now I think it's true. I mean, think of the impact that that must have had. So Jesus disrupted things at the temple not just because he was angry or miffed, but because he wanted as many people as possible to know and experience the saving Messiah. And so the rest of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus ministered and taught in the temple. And of course, the Sanhedrin, well, they were upset. They felt that they were in charge of the temple. And so they demanded to know from Jesus where he thought he got this authority to change things around him. Because after all, how dare God do something without their permission? But they were also afraid of the crowds and afraid to keep asking him questions because he kept on embarrassing them with his answers. And so Jesus went right on teaching some of the greatest teachings that you'll ever find. And here are some of the things that Jesus taught that week from Matthew and Luke. First, in the parable, parables of the faithful and unfaithful sons and in the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding banquet in which he taught that those invited to the kingdom had refused it, but sinners were responding and entering the kingdom of God. And then he taught on taxes. And then with the widow's might, he taught us that it's not the size of the gift that matters, but the size of the heart that matters. Then he taught on the resurrection of the dead. He taught on the greatest commandment and how the most important thing of all of life is to learn how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your mind. Then he warned them about how dangerous hypocrisy is to your spiritual life, and he taught them about the end times and what to expect. And then in the parable of the ten virgins, he taught us about being ready for him to come because we don't know exactly when he is coming back. And in the parable of the tenants, he taught us about the importance of being faithful with what has been entrusted to us. Then in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he warned us on how to behave in light of coming judgment. Jesus' ministry from Monday to Wednesday of this week is the most amazing three days of ministry the world has ever seen. And then we come to Thursday and the Last Supper. And we don't have time to cover everything here, but there are a couple things that I want you to see. First, as the supper begins, Jesus says in Luke, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Do you sense the love that Jesus has for his disciples as they share this Passover together? But look what else he does. He's looking beyond this immediate meal. And he indicates that this meal represents something better that is coming in the future. He says, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. He's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, described in Revelation chapter 19. It happens when 
All of the redeemed are gathered together with Jesus. And you get a sense for the tremendous love that he has for all of his people. Just like the love he had for the disciples here at the Last Supper. And he wants you to be there. You have an invitation if you'll receive it. Then the next thing I want you to see at the Last Supper is this. It says that Jesus wrapped a servant's towel around himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus takes the form of the lowliest servant. I mean, he had previously said that he had not come to be served, but to serve. And so he washes the feet of a bunch of guys who don't really deserve to have their feet washed. I mean, everything in his ministry was about serving humanity, a humanity that didn't really deserve it. And so the next day on the cross, he's going to serve us not by washing our feet, but he will wash our sins away by shedding his blood. And can I tell you, I mean, just like Peter, who felt unworthy to have Jesus wash his feet, I feel unworthy to have Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, die for me in my place. I don't deserve that. None of us deserve that. But just like Jesus told Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He says to us as well, if you want to take part in this marriage supper of the Lamb, you must have your sins cleansed and washed away. And so he goes on during the meal and says, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, then after the meal, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives where his hours of suffering for us commenced. He spent several hours agonizing in prayer. The stress was so great that it says it was like great drops of blood falling on the ground. Then near morning, his friend Judas came with armed temple guards and betrayed him with a kiss. After they arrested him, they took him to an illegal meeting of the Sanhedrin where he was mocked and spit on and slapped and punched. Then they took him to Pilate and falsely accused him of crimes deserving death. And, and then Pilate sent them to Herod. So they dragged this exhausted Jesus all the way across the city to Herod, where they vehemently continued to accuse him, and where Herod and his guards mocked him and ridiculed him. And when they finally tired of that, they then dragged him all the way back across the city again, back to Pilate. And Pilate um, then had Jesus whipped and wanted to release him, but the crowd cried for him to release a murderer named Barabbas instead. And so the innocent Jesus was sentenced to die in place of the sinner who was released. From there, he was beaten again with a cat of nine tails and then forced to carry his own cross out of the city to a place called Calvary where they crucified him. They drove spikes through his feet and through his hands, the hands that had healed so many. Now, I want you to really see and understand what is going on here. When they crucified Jesus, it wasn't just a bad thing that happened to a good guy. It wasn't just some random cosmic injustice. But the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God, was paying the penalty for my sin and your sin. The Apostle Peter said it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The Apostle John said it this way, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice 
for our sins. And then when all was completed, it says that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But I want you to see one more thing that happened before we move on. In Matthew, it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain was a symbol of the separation between God and humanity because of sin. Moses had established it in the tabernacle. Behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, which symbolized the presence of God, and people were not allowed in there. And this curtain in the temple of Jesus' day was said to be 60 feet tall and four inches thick, and it was torn in two from top to bottom. Only the hand of God could do something like that in an instant. God himself was saying to the world, the way into the presence, into his presence, was now opened. Now there is access to God because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. After that, it says that they took Jesus down from the cross. They wrapped him in spices uh, with layers and uh, with spices in between each layer. They laid him in a nearby tomb and a huge boulder was placed in front of it. Then Pilate had the grave sealed and placed a detachment of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. And so began for the followers of Jesus the most grief-filled Sabbath they had ever experienced. All their hopes were crushed. Their beloved Jesus was gone. The one who had raised Lazarus from the dead now lay himself dead in a tomb. I mean, can you think for a minute about the agony of soul they were experiencing? The despair, the sorrow, the darkness, the anguish, the absence of any hope. You know, when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we can't, and we can't see what God is doing, or, or maybe he just seems silent, or sometimes, you know, we can begin to feel this way. Or maybe some of you, or maybe some uh, people you know may be feeling this way right now about the corona situation. Despair, darkness, absence of hope. But I want you to hold on for a minute because our story is not done. Friday and Saturday may be filled with mourning and sadness, but Sunday's coming. And the Gospels go on to say this in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in the first verse. It says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Jesus did not stay dead. Death had no power over him. Because of the power of an indestructible life, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so he rose from the dead. He says to us in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, because I live, 
you also will live. In another place, it says it this way, because Jesus lives forever, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And let me show you from the Bible what this salvation looks like. In Revelation chapter 21, and this is what everything Jesus did is driving at. This is what the entire Bible is driving at and what all human history is driving towards. In Revelation chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then in verse 6, he went on to say, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And so, as we conclude this morning on this Resurrection Sunday, this is the appeal that the risen Jesus makes to us. He loves us so much that he left heaven to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross because the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, I can't save myself you can't save yourself because of sin. We don't even come near uh, to God's standards of holiness and righteousness. And if, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, which one of us would say, you know what, when we die and we're approaching the gates of heaven, that the gates are just going to swing right open as the angels sing the hallelujah chorus to welcome us. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not all that. We needed Jesus to pay the penalty for us. And he loved us enough to do it on the cross. Then he rose from the dead and now he's establishing an everlasting kingdom that he wants us to live in for eternity with him. But he won't force us. If we want to live in sin and go on controlling our lives and being our own Lord, he'll let us do that and live with the consequences for eternity. But that's not what he desires. Peter said that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. He says, to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you really haven't had a relationship with him, but you find yourself ready now to surrender your heart to him, to put your faith in him and to follow him, well, I'm going to pause right here and lead you in prayer, a prayer of repentance and faith. And I'm not talking here about joining a religious group, or associating yourself with one group over another. I wouldn't even waste a moment talking with you about that. But I would do everything in my power to introduce you to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so 
if you're ready to pray and you want to make Jesus your Savior, would you bow in prayer and follow me in this prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I confess I can't save myself. I don't measure up to your standards. I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. Lord Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord. I give you control of my life. Help me to walk in faith and in trust and follow you all the days of my life as I give you control now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My friend, if you've done that right now, maybe for the first time or maybe you're coming back to a relationship with Jesus, uh, can I encourage you, as you prayed in faith, God has done everything that you've asked him to do. And we want to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. I encourage you, take your Bible out, read a little bit of it every day. If you don't know the Bible at all, start in the Gospel of Mark. And you're going to find that God is speaking to you in ways that you never imagined. And then secondly, pray every day. Even if you start with just five or ten minutes, God wants to hear from you every day. And then let us know what you've done. Maybe go to our website, LancasterFirst.com, and fill out a Connect card there, and uh, we can help you grow in your relationship. Or even better yet, maybe just in the chat uh, window, just uh, put a praying hands emoji, and we'll contact you uh, online. Now, here's just a few closing thoughts then for all of us. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about the servant Messiah. This week, we talked about the suffering Messiah and the risen Messiah and the reigning Messiah. What we haven't really touched on is the ascended Messiah. It's described like this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I know that this is a time of uncertainty and a time of need for a lot of people. So here's what we're going to do to wrap up. I'm going to close in a general prayer and then the stream will stop momentarily. And after a couple of minutes, we'll start another stream. And Jill will be joining me for prayer. She's been monitoring all your prayer requests. And we're going to pray over those live then. And uh, so would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. I pray for everyone who's been uh, tuning in and worshiping along with us, God. God, let your blessing and your grace and your mercy overflow uh, to each one. God, we pray that you would accomplish everything you want to accomplish in our hearts and our lives by your word and by your spirit. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.